0: why I'm so passionate about music to code by because it works I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding there's only one problem they can't get enough well not only are we up to track 13 but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price the collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago still only a little more than 4 bucks a track but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks that's only 3 bucks a track yeah that's more like it 325 minutes of pure bliss go get it now at collection.musictocodebuy.net
1: .NET Rocks, episode 1329, with guests Stéphane Lapointe, Dylan Smith, William Bushwalther, and Alexandre Brisbois. Recorded Tuesday, July 5th, 2016.
0: Hey Montreal, it's .net rocks. Awesome.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: so uh, we're we're at DevTeach. We are at DevTeach.
3: This is. It's been a while since we've been here. He hasn't uh, yeah, he hadn't, hadn't done a show in a while. The last one was 2013 in Vancouver, right? Of course, the the apocryphal, if accurate, story is that we met at DevTeach. You and I did, In 2004. 2004. We were at a speaker's dinner.
0: Interestingly, we're on our way to a speaker's dinner tonight. Yes, we will. So we were at a speaker's <laughs> dinner. I was sitting at a totally different table, and uh, I was actually looking for guests for .NET Rocks, and I was talking to, of all people, Jim Duffy. And this is in the Rory days. Yes, it was in the Rory days. And uh, I'm talking to Jim Duffy, and, and, and you know he's funny and all that stuff, but we really didn't get around to too much technology. And then I heard this voice. You know that voice. As if Richard's talking and telling a story in a room, everybody's going to hear it, whether they're <laughs> wanting to or not. <laughs> if you're in the room, you're hearing the story. Yeah, that's right. So uh, he was talking about a guy who makes flying cars. Paul Moeller. Paul Moeller, yep. and he was also talking about how he cools his PC with water, and he's got tubes connected to it for, you know, because back in the Pentium days, that's what you crazy people did. To, I'm trying to make the machine cool,
3: right. but quiet. Right. So radiators and water pumps. And,
0: and I said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And he came over to my table, and then I was like, I want you to be on my show.
3: So And I was a guest is- on show number 69. Right, and then you
0: came on as co-hosted show 100, and yep. the rest is history.
3: Yeah, and now, what, 1,300 or 1,200-something episodes later? That's right. I'm still the new guy. But For know.
0: those of you who don't listen to the show, it's all about um, not just .NET, but things that .NET programmers might be interested in, even that might be outside your realm of experience, and that's uh, sort of what we do here. Yeah. And uh, speaking of that, the next thing that we do is a little segment we call Better Know a Framework. So roll that crazy, stupid music.
4: All
0: right, buddy. What do you got? Well, today I uh, found this product, this service called Algolia. It's A-L-G-O-L-I-A dot com. Hmm. And uh, you can, of course, get there with a the show number dot dot me. So it's right. 1329 dot Pwop.me. It's a hosted search API that delivers instant and relevant results from the first keystroke. Nice. Not my words. Uh, features like so I auto hit A and yeah. immediately relevant. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean you know it's got that googly bingy kind of instant gratification. Okay. Thing. All right. Uh, features like autocomplete, mobile search. And an instant results page, uh, also an ultra fast backend. That's not just fast here and there, but everywhere worldwide. Uh, the f- pricing wise, the free version typically lets you search like ten thousand records with hundred thousand atomic operations. Also, community support, meaning no no real company support. Right, uh, it's a free product. I yeah, heard. it's a free product. Right. Um, a one day history of analytics. Of course, the price and the features and the numbers go up from there, okay. starting from 50 bucks a month to all the way up to 900 dollars a month, and hopefully Ooh. by then you'll be raking in the money.
3: Yeah, so make it worth it. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man.
0: Yeah, it, it it looks good. Of course, you know this is just something I found. It's trending. Yep, I haven't used it, so uh, don't send me hate mail. But it's on your radar. It sucks. Sorry, but yes, it is okay. on my radar.
3: Cool. That's what I got. Who's talking to us, my Grabbed friend? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1308, the one we did with Wes Higby, where we did the very clickbaity title, DevOps is Dead. Yes. Because normally we don't go that far over the line, but that was one of those days where we went that far over the line. I Although, think our
0: ratings were slipping, and we yeah, needed to. Yeah, maybe that's what
3: it was. Yeah. Okay, I don't know. Suddenly, suddenly we're Gawker. Like, Okay. On the other hand, I thought the show itself was great. I thought so, too. Because, uh, you know, I think my favorite line from West was that don't let process get in the way of doing the right thing. Right. And, uh, and the comments on the show very much reflected this sort of thing. And Rob Schieffer said, uh, this was a good, thought-provoking show. Lots of great points that I agree with around blindly following, quote, standards or taking a dogmatic approach to development and management. However, I do think it's more helpful Than hurtful to specify default approaches on most enterprise, typically large environments. Mm. Large groups of contributors in many separate teams will often find independent solutions that will work, but that approach often leads to less collaboration, not more. The organization is missing out on the key advantages of being large, and that is to share information, work together, and benefit from the organization's economies of scale. Mm. Agile slash DevOps slash continuous delivery... Are popular because they've been proven to be more successful than the alternatives in the majority of projects and companies. I agree this is not always the case, but we must be mindful to watch for these exceptions, but they are a great place to start as the, quote, default approaches. Yep. The overall message is nothing is absolute, and each challenge is a new opportunity to find the best and potentially a new approach. Agile DevOps and continuous delivery all have foundation on creating feedback loops which reflect the improvements. If they aren't a good fit that will be identified early and adjustments can be made in another approach when necessary, that means there are very little risks starting with these uh, pre-planned approaches.
0: Pre-planned?
3: Yeah. And this is where I feel like Rob sort of contradicted himself because on one hand, he wants to set a set of standards on how we should approach something because we're a big enterprise and we want to sort of have that cross-team. But then he also wants us to evaluate those standards as we're doing them and alter them if they're not appropriate.
0: Which is really just
3: smart. I, mean, I, they, I totally it, agree, but then why bother with the default approaches? Right, well, like, it's a good starting place. Yeah, I mean, you would hope you'd work from something that works. But uh, the, the challenge here is you get into the trap of potential dogma. That this is what the enterprise architects say is the right way to build software, and you must start there and you know, it can you can go off the wrong ways. I again I think
0: it's the way with everything yeah. in human nature. We want we want answers that work all the time in every situation, and you just can't um, bring it that way. You have to say, All right, this is how we're starting. This is phase one, this is our strategy for phase one. We're gonna move and define our our strategies as we go along.
3: But if you get a multiple parts of the organization moving at the same time, they are very likely to diverge. Yeah. And I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. You know, at the same time, it actually, ultimately people are, people care enough about the process to try and improve it themselves. Yeah. I think we're better off. Yeah. So, uh, Rob, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read on the show, we'll send you a mug.
0: And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We spread them on our smoked meat sandwiches. Like mustard. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's talk to our panelists. Uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves, starting with Dylan. Go ahead.
2: Hi, guys. I'm Dylan Smith from Winnipeg, Manitoba, working with Imaginant. I'm an ALM consultant out there visiting my clients, helping them be better at ALM and DevOps. Out there with Joel Semeniak.
4: Out there with Joel, that's right. Yeah, cool. good friend of ours. William? Hey, everyone. So I'm William Bischfelter. I'm a technical evangelist on DevOps at Microsoft. Um, and so my role is pretty much to help our customer understand DevOps practices and implement them. And new to Microsoft, too. New to Microsoft, Just yeah, three months. months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you also like to keep one foot in the developer space. You said, oh, yeah, more than one, actually. Yeah, more than one. <laughs> three feet. <laughs> yeah, I have a developer background, and I still want to do that uh, for the yeah. future. So developer so, yeah. going into DevOps,
0: that's pretty yeah. awesome. Usually we get them from the other way around. Yeah, exactly. So, and so yeah. actually you
4: have my colleague, Julien, who is uh, the ops of the team. Right. We have two in the team, one dev, one ops. Great, nice. So,
1: <laughs> Stefan, Hi, my name is Stefan. i I'm uh, a Azure MVP and uh, playing a lot with uh, automation and creating environments and all those kind of stuff, uh, especially on Azure. So DevOps and everything uh, around automation really passionate me and uh, yeah, that's it. Great, Azure and DevOps, two great tastes that taste great together.
0: (laughs) Alexander.
5: Hi, uh, my name is Alexandre Isoit. I'm an Azure technical solutions professional for Eastern Canada working at Microsoft. And uh, I help our customers get on board with Azure, find their way around all our awesome services, yeah. and uh, also dabble in development DevOps and pretty much everything that comes with Azure. Yeah, awesome.
0: Well, Richard, this is your kind of wheelhouse, so <laughs> as most of the DevOps shows, I kind of sit back and wait for to jokes that I can
3: put in. Nice. This is my job. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Go ahead and kick us off. You know, one of the things, and I think you did this in your talk today, Dylan, too, was just getting a definition of DevOps from different people because they all have their own interpretation of them. And I've already heard yours, Dylan, so I'm going to start at the other end with Alex and work my way back. Alex, how, when some folks ask you, how do I get some DevOps or what DevOps is, what do you say?
5: I usually start by talking about um, a culture of continuous improvement right. and then using tools and process to support that, in, that initiative within the company.
3: So just the idea of continuous improvement, you don't focus on any given teams, you just draw everybody in from there?
5: That's a tricky question because, yes, you need to start somewhere. Yep. You need to start small and then grow it out. Uh, but you also need buy-in from the top down right. for this to work properly. Well, and the
3: way you phrase that to me sounds like you were talking to a CXO of yes. some kind. Because there's, there's no CXO in the world that isn't going to say, yes continuous improvement, (laughs) but no errors are allowed. Right,
5: right? Right. so um, I usually start from looking at it saying happiness is DevOps cornerstone. And the reason, yeah, happiness. And the reason I think this is that if my employees or my developers aren't happy, there's nothing in the world I can bring into the enterprise to make things better. Right. I need to get that, to find why are they not happy or what irritates them to start down that process of making things better for everybody?
3: And there's a really, I think there's a big conversation to be had around the cultures of fear that often exist in organization around that, but we will, that'll be a half an hour. So I'm gonna move on from you over to Stefan and to say, Stefan, well, how do you describe DevOps? Uh,
1: first, I think is to really uh, bring people together ready to uh, eliminate silos and just, yeah, make people collaborate and don't, so they don't, ha- they, they're just not in their corner doing their stuff, uh, throwing something in production and running because the, and let that into the hands of the uh, of the other guys. So for me, it's really bringing people together, uh, improving uh, processes, like uh, Alexandre says, and really make things better and using a cycle, try to improve yourself all the time with small, uh, with small feedback loops and everything. So
4: it's really a way to improve yourself all cool. the time. Well? Yeah, so I very much agree with what they said, but my definition is really you know people, process and product in that order, not in any other order. So, you need first to have the culture. So, the culture where you accept innovation, you accept risk taking, where everyone understands that they only create value when they ship something to the customer. Right. Not when they do a commit or whatever. It's when the customer has something in the end. That's where you create value. And once everybody understands that, everybody understands that they have to work together to maximize the amount of value the customer has. And I, then, mean, and
3: I would argue just because you got it to the customer, doesn't mean you actually provide value to the customer right. at, at that point. But, I mean it helps. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't get it to the customer I guarantee you're yeah, not providing yeah. value to them. Yeah. But I, I, I you know, one of the conversations I've had in this space over and over again is when do you throw the party? Yeah. Right? Because it used to be the devs threw the party as soon as they shipped the code to ops. Right? Those guys were still installing it and we were drinking beer. Yeah. Right? And it's like, okay, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should wait until they've installed it. Then we'll throw a party. Yeah. It's like, oh no, that, you know, then you sort of this realization of actually you want to wait till we get a certain amount of customer feedback, maybe cross a certain threshold of acceptance or excitement
4: or value, and then throw the party. Yeah, exactly. But the faster you go in production, the faster you can measure the feedback. Right. And the faster you can know if you can go have a party or if you should work on your stuff. That, <laughs> for continuous deployment is party all the time.
3: Lots of little little parties. parties. (laughs) Lots of little parties. No more big parties. (laughs) Dylan, your version of this. All right.
2: So to me, DevOps... Right. Uh, if you study like Lean and, and Kanban, and stuff, they talk a lot about flow, right? right. So I, 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 like, I like what you said, Will, about it, it's not value until it's delivered, right? So software development is everything from I have an idea to we're receiving value from it. Right. And it used to be before the whole agile movement that the bottleneck in that process was like requirements or analysis or maybe testing. Right. And agile's fixed a lot of that. Or made it better at least. Mm-hmm. Now there's a new bottleneck, and that's that's the boundary between dev and operations. Right, right. Lots of friction, lots of pain. It's the bottleneck for realizing business value, in my opinion, for a lot of teams. DevOps is about recognizing that and doing something to make it better.
3: Yeah, I do like this idea of just looking for where the next bottleneck is, solving that bottleneck, and you'll always be another one. But I come from this from a performance tuning perspective as a you know a uh, uh, a guy who rode the. The dot com boom very well, making sites go faster and faster and faster. And it's like there is always a bottleneck. There's always a point of where things are going slower. Yeah. And we just try to open it until people stop carrying it, there's a bottleneck. But it, that never actually goes away. It's just a question of where it is next.
2: Yeah. And I'm really interested in if we, if we can solve the DevOps problem, what is the next bottleneck? So, um, you guys all believe that people come first, obviously.
0: And you know, we say this all the time people is first in the list. So putting on a little psychology hat here, what, uh, what do you see are the, 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 the traits of people, you know, the, the character traits that get them in trouble in terms of um, not being able to participate in the things that, uh, in, the, in the rituals
4: of DevOps, let's say, that make things go better? Seeking you have to be very good to give your, uh, your opinion. I've seen that a lot of time. People have a lot of opinion, but you know, just no, yeah, I'm not going to tell because I don't know what I'm talking about. So you're saying, yeah. so you're saying the lack of opinionation or no, too opinion, opinion too but much like,
0: opinionation. No, you, is... no,
4: that's not what, uh, what I mean. Is some people have opinion, but they're too afraid to express them. Oh, I see. Right? So it, don't be afraid to express yeah, your opinion. Express your opinion. Got you it. have to eliminate all the uh, untold. Uh, what do you call that? If, if you don't agree with something, say it. Don't yeah. just keep it for yourself. That's right. very important. And this is what one of the things Richard touched on too, which is the
3: fear. You know yeah. The fear factor. Exactly. People just yeah. have
0: fear of interaction and yeah. fear of fear of confrontation. Let's put it that way, right? Mm, exactly.
3: But, but just because you're afraid doesn't mean you shouldn't be afraid either, right? Like, I think an interesting aspect of this is uncovering the cultural poisons that inhibit this stuff, too. I mean, can anybody speak to a story where, you know, everybody's making the right noises, but we're not actually getting better, and you have to sort of dig into that cultural problem?
4: Yeah. um, Yeah, I mean, I've never seen that personally. Yeah. So I'm sure it exists. Everybody wants to be better. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And they mean it. No, they they mean, yeah. I mean, they mostly mean it. But, um, uh, yeah. I mean, from my experience, it was really what i saw was really people had a lot of good ideas but they were they were they they felt that the idea was not worth seeing. right and that was really the the bottleneck there
0: i i can i can speak to one because you know i've worked on teams as well and there was there's one there's one thing that peop, some people do and very few do it but it drives me nuts which is you know you're trying to um, figure out how to do something you've all come to a consensus you've moved on and then the second day somebody comes in after they've had a chance to think about it and says, no, 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 this is all wrong. Let's do this, you know, instead of doing X, Y, Z, let's do K and go off in another vector and which might be a little even more ambitious, but a little cooler and more fun. But, you know, it's like, you know, Hey, let's, let's dial it back a little bit. We've all, we've all agreed on a way to go here. And I don't mean to say that uh, we, we shouldn't evolve, but um, to, to just, you know, after a week of progress to completely suggest that we go in an entirely opposite direction just because you're bored or you you
3: like this cool technology or something. You usually get frustrated, right? It's frustrating. Like every, uh, yeah, okay, we had five choices here. We picked one of them. We did. We spent a week on it and now it's gotten hard. Right. Did we actually make the wrong choice? Or is the reality, no matter what choice you make, after a week, it's going to get hard?
0: Right. Or, or it's going to get maybe boring, or it's right. not the coolest stuff in the world, but it's stuff that we have to do, you know, the, especially in the first week of a project. That's when you're doing stuff that's not particularly exciting, right? You're building up frameworks and doing all sorts of, maybe, maybe a little plumbing and that kind of thing. I mean, have you, have you found this uh, personality so- type?
5: I've been on many teams uh, before joining Microsoft. I had a developer career. And um, what I've noticed is that not everybody is comfortable learning something new quickly right. or implementing things quickly, trying them out, seeing if it works, switching them out if it doesn't work, and just fiddling around with a process to figure out how to move things along. Right. And that fear has usually led to teams either staying the way... Things have always been done. The fear of even proposing something new because they know they're going to get shut down, right? And that's usually something really hard to overcome. Yes, it is.
0: Yeah, and and especially if they are naysayers up front, you know, and then they suggest something that you know might look a little easier, and then you know it turns out that the hard way is the right way, but it doesn't get results immediately, and then they're saying, "I told you so," "I told you so," "You should have listened to me," whatever.
5: Yeah, and you know. fear of. Um, Just failing. Right. There, usually when you walk into a company and failing is not seen as an opportunity to learn or to progress. It just makes everything so much harder to move along. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, in this, we sort of get into this top, you know, is the senior management accepting of the idea that we need to experiment and not all experiments are going to go well. That it's going to going to take time to get stuff right. And but we that's the only way we actually get better. So I think often, they, if you're not a developer, development looks like magic. And nobody knows why stuff takes time. Like, it's kind of baffling. Right? I think of the XKCD cartoon. The guy saying, hey, I want, I'm going to give you a bunch of pictures, and I want you to tell me which ones of them are from national parks. And are like, yep, no problem. i have that done in a couple of days. I'll just pull the GIS data off the, off the photos. Oh, and I'd also like to no, know if any of those photos have birds in them. It's like, I'm going to be a team of scientists in 10 years. <laughs> so like, if there were two statements that seem almost the same to a layperson yeah. and yet the and we all cuz we're tech people giggle at that because we know exactly why that one one of them's easy and one of them's impossible right and so i'm dealing with senior management here who think i have no idea why stuff takes a long time or a short time in development but i figure if i keep whipping them it'll get done eventually maybe somebody will die but that's not my problem i'll get another one
0: I have an analog in the music world, which is i 'm a studio musician, and so oftentimes I get called on to play guitar solos and things on people 's records and uh, and I always tell people i say look it 's going to take me eleven takes, but I guarantee you on that eleventh take it 's going to be gold right <laughs> so but they have to be patient with me because you know it, the first take you know whatever' second. Third, okay, by the by about the fifth or sixth, I kind of know what direction I'm going in, but I have to sort of feel my way around. But by the 11th take, man, it's like nailed.
4: And they're not always patient, you know, sometimes, because time is money in the studio. Yeah, but I think to, to go back to the first uh, question you asked to Alex about do you need to start with a team or with everyone? Right. That's a bit where you know, yes, you need to start maybe with a small project in the company, but you have to engage everyone vertically, you know, from right. the, from the CEO up to bottom. Because you need to of everyone to, to do that. So you don't require
3: everybody in the company to be involved, or not all the devs, or not all of ops. You need that vertical stripe, yeah. top to bottom, mm. engaged. And I think it's one of the places I see people often go wrong is that they don't get buy-in from senior management. Yeah. And because you pretty much end up at one at some point. Right? It's a director of dev, or it's a CTO, or something like that. And if that person's not bought in, it almost doesn't matter. Like they, you can do what you want.
2: I view it a little bit differently, like, like you use the word experiments, and I think that's great when I'm coaching teams to like be improve their processes. I view I, I coach them to think of it as experiments. This is not the way we're going to do it forever, but let's, right. let's try this and see how it works and, and decide on how we're going to determine if it works right but kind of related to that, what I see you're talking about like fear of failure. a big problem I see a lot is um, not empowering the teams to improve how they do things mm-hmm. right You said you need approval from the CTO down. And I would, I would say, no, I would want the CTO to empower that team to change how they do things. The CTO shouldn't care how we're doing our builds or what technology we're using for testing. Understand what the CTO cares about, business value. Right. And empower the team to make decisions
3: and make changes to deliver on those goals faster. Is this the big disconnect? Because I think an awful lot of developers don't know how their company makes money. And I think that's part of the problem that needs that to be changed. Mm-hmm right?
2: Empower them, give them more visibility, not just say, write some code to do this, or oh, you're done, write some code to do this, right? right? Give them visibility into the impact of the work that they're doing, right? And then empower them to make changes to do it better.
3: Well, and I also like this idea that you come at them with business goals. We're trying to increase sales, or we're trying to increase the marginal rate of a sale, or any of these sort of real numbers that can be equated to dollars that, that you know, trickle all the way down to features, Absolutely. Uh, The the challenge is doing that math and actually having those conversations because for a long time, we've just been metriced on get the code out the door.
2: Yeah, but I mean, even that's a great place to start, though, right? As long as you're looking at actually in production being used by users versus the features done coding, I'm, I'm done that user story, right? Even if you started, how much... How many features can you get into production, into the hands of users? How long does it take to go from, I have an idea, to users are using it? Right. Right? Even if you're not tying it to to business value yet.
3: Although, um, one would argue, when I'm fed a set of requirements for user stories of what the users want to do, isn't it a fair question before I write code one to say, how will this provide value? And get those guys making predictions about value as well and admittedly they're projections right we haven't written it yet we don't know how much value it's actually going to provide but we see value here like maybe get a number around that and say can we exceed that number like again you think about when should I throw the party it's like when I beat that predicted number would be a pretty good time.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, and people are implicitly making that decision. Anytime you prioritize a list of user stories, priority equals value over effort. Right. So if you're putting them in order, somebody is implicitly deciding on what the value is. Right? So I think it's, it's really good to be more explicit about that. And if you put numbers, that's really hard to do. But, I mean, that would be great. And even better would be not even putting a number for how
3: much expected value, but have a way to measure realized value right. after it goes live. Well, and now, now we get into that sort of iterative process because you're also asking me to estimate effort. So you're gonna estimate value, you know, as an analyst. Then I'm gonna push it to dev saying, now estimate effort. Then we could try and rank things. Like, it's, it's interesting to think, because all too often by the time the analyst types are talking to development, they've already decided in order. Like, it's done. Before they knew what the effort numbers actually were. Or they've, they've decided what your effort's going to be, whether they're correct or not. But to actually be able to go back and then that priority list changes. That's kind of interesting. I don't know how often that actually happens.
2: I think it in scrum teams that happens all the time. Right. Every sprint planning meeting, right? We're telling them the the budget. How many story points can we do this sprint? And that's the effort. Right. And then they go shopping from the backlog
3: and decide, okay, you know, let's pull those things across.
2: And even if you don't have that number for value, they're implicitly making it that's a 2 in effort and that's a 10 in effort, so I'm going to put, you know, the 2 higher and they're Figuring out the value, too, right?
3: But then you come around with, it may be a 10 in effort, but it's 100 in value. Right. Do it anyway. I know it's going to be hard. Yeah. And and those decisions are being made, even if they're not explicit. Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. It must be that happy time again. You got
0: it, brother. It's time to embrace the failure of humor.
3: Well, Come on, on, man. Give me a hug. Give (laughs) me a hug. Give me a hug. Come on, man.
0: (laughs) All right, it's actually, (laughs) subtle joke, it's actually time to give away a Component One studio from Component One to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let's talk about Grape City Active Reports. This is the reporting platform for all your business needs. Design, publish, view, print and export operational reports such as invoices, expense reports, tax and government forms, as well as strategic and analytical reports such as sales performance, budgeting and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation and flexibility you need to turn your data into informative, pixel perfect reports across the enterprise. And I love
3: that we're doing an ad for Active Reports. That was our first sponsor Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics. And they changed company names a couple, you know, for some acquisitions along the way. But there they are still making that great product. Yeah,
0: and it's still a great product.
3: That is awesome. Mm -hmm. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Billy Westbury. Ah, Congratulations, Billy. (laughs) No golf clap. Real claps. <laughs> I know. I got, and clappers. You brought I, the clappers. I brought the clappers because everybody likes to see the clappers. You well, wondered what those th- obnoxious things were. There what, they that's are. That's what they are. Yeah. They've got some miles on them now. They look a little battered. They those, are a little those bit. Those clappers.
0: Yeah. I'm going to have to order some more on Amazon. All right. I don't think you should. Really. Well, no, probably not. <laughs> well, uh, Billy just won the Component One Studio. Big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Answer a few questions and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a five thousand dollar technology shopping spree. True story to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan
3: club. We done like it, what, four f- times. Four now? times, yeah. yeah. And we only had to explain that we weren't Nigerian princes, like three of them. So yeah, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah, nobody believes you.
0: Yeah. And of course, we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend today, Dylan, on technology, what would you buy? Mm. I think I'd be looking
2: at a drone.
3: Ah, uh, five grand on a drone will get you a serious drone, too. I think so. Well, even, you know, uh, the cheaper ones, you're still looking at thousands. Well, and you're going to break it a bunch of times, so buy a lot of spare parts. I heard that happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Although, when you get the fancier ones, like that, the new Phantom 3, mm. they pretty much fly themselves. You're much less likely to crash into however, Yeah, I it. heard however, you can tell the,
2: it just to rotate around you, yeah, right?
0: right? However, they still are susceptible to being shot out of the sky by your redneck neighbor, so
3: <laughs> you got to be careful about <laughs> that. Spot the American in the room. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, who would do that? Who would right? do that? Not in Canada. Goodness no, no. Too, You're too polite. Well, may, maybe in you know, like northern Ontario. Oh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, did I say that outside? Like, that's not right. All right. I take it back. I love it when the Canadian
0: rags on his own country. That makes me really, really happy. There's not a lot to do up there. You see a drone,
3: you're going to shoot at it.
0: Maybe out in Dubuque, Saskatchewan. There's a lot of places to fly oh, drones. Oh,
3: I told Dubuque, Saskatchewan stories at dinner last night <laughs> yes, some, such as I remember them. All right, All right wh- That's
4: awesome, Dylan. William, what would you do with $5,000 right now? Um, my answer is going to be quite cliche for a Microsoft employee, but I guess it will be a HoloLens. Of course it will be a HoloLens because yeah, they're never going to give you one, man. You're going to have yeah, to buy no. <laughs> one. <laughs> <laughs> I have to buy it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> because but, that's
4: one of those things where you really need to have the device in your hand to be able to experiment with it. You yeah, yeah. totally. don't have yeah. any simulator or whatever. So. I, you
3: know, I was skeptical about it until I got one. And after you spend some time with it, it's just so flip and profound the only problem is I don't get any work done. I'm having such a good time with it. It's like all of a sudden half the day's gone by. and like, I got to do some stuff. Thank goodness the battery runs down. Right. <laughs> if it, not for that, that would be the end of it for me. Right? you just be in it all the time.
0: The best thing for me was watching my 14-year-old daughter play Robo Raid in my living room and then having everybody come in and watch her. And she's like... <laughs> <laughs> The Whoa! Inter- I mean, you can't see what I'm doing, but no. I'm looking very intense. But
3: Robo Raid uses the 3D camera to map your room, and then it positions on your actual walls, breaks in the wall, even shows wiring and pipe work behind the wall, which is a problem for me because I know I it's in it. my wall. So when it broke yeah. up, I'm like, that pipe's not there. Yeah. Oh, wait, that pipe's not there. <laughs> <laughs> very compelling. Very so, cool stuff. That's a good one, man. Uh, Stefan? Yeah, uh, I've got two things. A drone yeah, for, yes. uh, for
1: pictures and... Uh, Probably starting with uh, playing with uh, 3D printing. Yeah. yeah. So never, I saw others play with that. And it's re- re- really interesting
3: to well, and be it, able it, and to build your stuff. and Drones and yeah. 3D printers go together really well. When you yeah. break parts on your drone, you yeah. just print new ones. <laughs> <Yeah. So>. <laughs> Who <laughs> yeah, does <exactly>. that? <laughs> <laughs> Who would do that? I can't imagine. Yeah, that, uh, yeah the 3D printing sort of in an interesting state right now, mm-hmm. too, because MakerBot's gone. Yeah. What?
0: You know. yeah, MakerBot
3: went broke. Really? Yeah. Huh. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting time. I just
0: got a new 3D printer
3: called Tico T-I-K-O. Oh, yeah.
0: And it was, a, it was, an, it was a, one of these Kickstarter things, and it was cheap. But it was a very simple design. It was all about formed plastic and very, very lightweight stuff. But I haven't got it yet. I'll, I'll let you know how it works. Yeah, yeah. yeah? sure. Alexander. Uh, Alex?
5: Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to go with the HoloLens as well. Nah. Both the Microsoft yeah. are HoloLens <laughs> <right>. oh, <isn't laughs>
3: as Does this say something? <laughs> Shouldn't it's Microsoft very... just give all employees their devices
4: when they make well, them? Well, it
0: says that there's more demand than supply. Yeah, yeah. It, it really is. is. Oh, I yeah. think
4: we only have one HoloLens in the whole Canada. <sighs> The yeah, only it's, one in yeah. all of Canada. Yeah, for, for MS
3: Canada. For MS Canada, because yeah. I'm a Canadian. I have no, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ma- we, Microsoft Canada. We got a couple at our office. Yeah, that's, it's got a couple. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, we yeah. had to pull some feathers <laughs> to get those. Yeah, they're not, they're not easy to come by. There will be more, I presume. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> excited to see what happens in Hololens.
0: So, how does Hololens play into our DevOps story? Actually, <laughs>
3: uh, no, I'm totally kidding with that. There, I mean, change gears a bit on this, and I'm not not to just try and incorporate Hololens for the sake of it, but. You know, you do. You talked about this in your talk today, Dylan, too. Just this concept of seeing flow. Like one of the big battles I have working with organizations around trying to build software better is they don't know where the bottleneck board problems are. Uh, And often it's in operations. So I started getting my ops guys that every time they got interrupted, every time they took a phone call, every time an email, like had to do something, just writing it on a Post-it note and posting it on a board, which you could probably only do once or twice a day, and the thing that happened on that board over a couple over the better part of a week is though a most people don't know what ops guys do all day so suddenly seeing all of that was really compelling but after i started sorting out the post it notes like a third of them were essentially technical debt that they were a manifestation of the problem the shortcuts that, that we'd taken in development that leaned on the ops guys to keep stuff alive, rebooted the server again, rebuilt this thing, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And normally technical debt is so invisible. It's kind of cool to get that flow more visible, that you see the price of that work.
2: Yeah, and I, I see, I do the same thing with dev teams, though. What I see a lot is developers get interrupted a lot to do, like, production support stuff. Right. Right, yeah. right? and they bring it up, and, oh, I get interrupted so much, and I do the same thing. Every time it happens, just write a
3: post-it, just so we can see how much is this really happening. What's it's one of the reasons I find out, as soon as the developers are allowed to work their own hours, they work away from everybody else, because you need that big block of uninterrupted time to actually write some code. Yeah, and there's uh, the
2: guys that talk a lot about evidence based management. It's a thing some people talk about, getting all these numbers to understand how effective your dev organization is. One of those numbers, which I think is really interesting, they call the innovation ratio, hmm. and it and it tries to put a number around what percentage of your team's time is spent fixing bugs, production support versus delivering new features. Right. Right, and when you actually measure that and show that to executives, it tends to blow their minds. Because that's another manifestation of technical debt. Well, because you ask an executive what they feel that number is, eh, probably 80% of our time is spent on new features, innovation. No, it's usually the other way around, 20% yeah. if you're lucky. Do you ever suggest tools and techniques like
0: uh, the Pomodoro technique for developers, like any kind of time management things when you see that
2: developers are thrashing or not using their time effectively? Yeah, the Pomodoro is one. The, for the production support thing in particular, if it's, if it's a big problem, we can't get away from it right now at least. Usually what we'll do is we'll designate one person, maybe a different person each sprint. Yeah. And they handle all of the support incidents for the sprint nice. so that everybody else can focus. Nice.
4: Yeah, a little music to code by wouldn't hurt either. <laughs> <laughs> so to to go back to the idea, this idea of visualizing the flow, right? Uh, every time we go to a customer at Microsoft, we do something which is called value stream mapping. I yeah, don't know if you're aware.
3: We did that together.
4: Yeah, yeah we did that oh, together yeah. with, you with you Stefan. You guys have
3: collaborated on this, Stefan and, and uh, so. And we,
4: two weeks ago, I was at Orchestra, uh, with yeah. the, which was a previous company of Stefan, right. And we did that with Orchestra. Actually, it's a process which took us what a day and a half. Yeah, most of us. Yeah. So during the day, did you
3: say orchestrator?
4: Orchestra, Orchestra, which is the name of the company. Well, orchestra's the name of the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. exactly, yeah.
3: So what does value mapping look like?
4: So value stream mapping, basically, the idea is you, you, you take all the process that happens between the conception of an ID, idea, the ideation, and its, uh, its, uh, its delivery, and then... We're going to make fun of the word ideation later, right? Yeah, okay. later. <laughs> 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 and you put everything in, in a whiteboard, every step. All the way S- to... Starting from the end, go back to, to, the, to the beginning. And it's really re- reliving. You, you see a lot of stuff that you don't expect to see. And actually, you have a lot of, you know, maybe the developers will, will look at, the, at what the work is done by, by the ops, and they'll right. be like, "Wow, I didn't know that. And yeah. It's really, at Orchestra, the, the map was actually maybe 7 meters long, it's really, yeah. really Eight meters yeah. long. You and can walk. <laughs> yeah. You can so hold the map. 25 and feet. It gets to the, the whole wall. Yeah. To the whole and wall. And yeah. That's and where you s- did a HoloLens. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that's of a, a virtual wall. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that when you start to the executives, I mean, it's, it's there. It's in front of them. Right. They can yeah. deny how it. How long
3: there. did it take to put together that map? And how uh, many people were
4: involved? Around 10 hours. And we were... 15, but usually you can do it with less people.
3: Yeah, because I, I, I think like no one person knows that no, entire exactly. exactly. well, yeah, flow. fifteen, yeah,
1: and that was the good, the good thing about it, because a lot of things that was happening let's see, in the upside are more on the side of the developers. Let's see, during testing, building, uh, building environments, right. for those automated tests, you could see where the pain point and the waiting points were. And a lot of those steps, were unknown to a lot of people. So um, that helped really get a clear picture of what's involved between the idea at first and really the delivery to production and what can be improved because you, right. s- you see where the pain points are, where you are waiting for stuff or inputs or when uh, the, the process uh, is getting from a person A to person B and where uh, you want stuff being automated as much as possible, not being hand over to someone else and someone else and having manual steps. So it really helps have a clear understanding of what the, the process in your, in your organization or the delivery for you is and how to improve that.
3: And I, and I think part of this is just sort of discovering how
4: manual some of these processes exactly. actually are. Yeah. And yeah. also discovering things like maybe a step is Eric. Eric is something that only one person in the whole company knows yes. how to do. You want to eliminate that as yeah. much as possible. Well, I remember when there was like the idea was we had a build master. It was like the yeah. one person
3: in the building that knew when to kill the chicken. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, there was magic to trying to get a build work. And now you, you just want that to be automatic. You just hit a button. or I, I like the idea you could build by accident. Oh, you checked in some code. Here comes a build. I yeah. just that it's that's that trivial that reliable that repeatable
1: yeah and you want to make sure that uh, li- like you said you don't want only you don't want a hero uh, in your organization right. that no the, heroes the,
3: yeah so if you get hit by the bus yeah. <laughs> you want to yeah. be
1: able to move on and and uh, i'm yeah. into to
3: do a company where a guy took a week-long vacation and for that week nobody could actually do a build
4: yeah it's it's yeah. But it's pretty common, honestly. That's
3: amazing. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting part of it. The trick is even knowing that the Eric's exist. Yeah. Because they they may not show up to the meeting. They're busy. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's a real challenge to actually work through a flow like that and actually get everything.
4: Yeah. Did you say Eric? What's an Eric? Eric. Oh, no, sorry. It's my no. my beautiful French accent. It's heroic. 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 No, heroic. heroic. I called him
3: Eric. I Eric the hero.
4: Eric, Eric <laughs> the terrible. Okay.
1: No, it's just that single person, that hero yeah. person that yeah. knows how to do stuff or is the only one that could do it. Right. So...
3: Yeah, and I, it's it's really interesting to, to surface that. I could also see you working through a flow like that, and then publishing the organization, and then getting a whole bunch of feedback from folks who weren't aware that you were doing it, or or you know weren't able to participate. And it's like, oh, you forgot about this, and forgot about this, yeah. and forgot about this. Like, I think it might take a few iterations to really get that nailed.
1: And the, one of the good things is that when you have that in your face, you suddenly realize that okay, you thought at first, let's say that it would take you a month. To take an idea and bring it into production, and you realize that it's twice or three months or four months or whatever the the amount of weeks, you usually get surprised
3: by the amount of time that it actually takes. Well, it's super easy to get in this agile trap of it's a sprint. Yeah. And it's six weeks. Yeah. Ignoring the fact that there were several weeks before that while you were maturing the stories and prioritizing enough that they got into a sprint. Yep. And then you went through the sprint, and then you forgot about the fact that it needed to be de- tested and deployed. Hmm. Well, Scrum says potentially shippable. is a
2: big gap between potentially shippable and actually shipped, <laughs> right? Which Scrum doesn't even look at, really. So I have a question for you. Um, it seems to me that you know these
0: things that we've been doing in in companies and corporations since the beginning of time, you know, team building and trust building exercise, everybody sort of laughs at, right? It's sort of like become a joke, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, you, you, you and you fall backwards into somebody, you know, and they catch you and that's supposed to like build up, you know, it's become a joke. So do you have any strategies for sort of getting the same results that, you know, these sort of stereotypical Games uh, pretend to um, bring out um, without, you know, sort of being overt about it. I mean, you know, building trust in a team and building uh, camaraderie and building the, you know, bringing out the ability in people to speak their minds and not feel threatened. All of these things are really, really important. And how do you do that without being corny and, you know, without overtly revealing your hand about, about what you're doing?
1: I think being being open with people being uh, how can I say that the to show p- openness to with what others are doing and and not being also emotional about what you have you may have wrote for mm-hmm. code or a script or whatever, and just like like we said you, you don't always you're not always right the first time so don't be emotional about what you wrote, what you mm. do. And let, let place to improvement. And like I said, to other people also. And be patient with others also. Be, uh, yeah, just be a good guy. With <laughs> do do <laughs> any sort of tools help? Like I've
0: noticed that with the guys that I manage, Slack is a like a wonderful thing. Yeah, for and communication. It, yeah, it encourages people to to talk not only about what the project is, but about, you know, their social things and things they see on the internet and they can geek out and not feel threatened, you know, because it's that sort of online environment. Yes. Does taking away the face-to-face barrier uh, help in, or does it hurt in the long run? I mean, what, what do you think guys think about that?
5: I've had um, distributed teams and I actually found that having that camera really brings the humanity back into that conversation. Mm -hmm. Being able to see each other's faces. Yeah, exactly. You can see those expressions and you can react to them. So if you say something that's either out of place or not exactly where you should be going, you have that chance to correct yourself or find a way to express exactly what you were thinking. Um, And also what I found is that showing that you yourself are making mistakes and showing people how you come up with solutions or possible leads to resolving those situations really helps the team come together. And even asking for your team's support in resolving those issues really builds that trust within the team saying everybody can fail and everybody can work together to come over that challenge.
0: Right, and is that true for ops people as well as developers?
5: I don't know about ops. I really concentrated more on development and... Anybody else? I, I think the same stuff applies whether
2: you're development or ops. When you're talking about like dev people versus ops people in the context of DevOps, one thing I, I talked about in my session earlier is I, I kind of see people approach that in three different ways. One way is getting ops people more involved in the dev team, right? Collaborating more closely, they're involved from the start, day to day, which is good. Another approach I see is developers just taking responsibility that was historically ops responsibility, mm-hmm. deployments, automating deployments, provisioning environments, and then and then a third way is introducing a new role which is a DevOps engineer, kind of like the modern build master, hmm. and it's his focus to bridge that gap between. So I just wanted to mention, that you said, is it the same for ops and devs and there's Also different dynamics, different approaches people take to solving this problem of DevOps.
0: Yeah, because you know, and Richard talks about this in his DevOps talks, is the psychology of developers is a little different than the psychology of of ops guys. You know, developers, and you can tell the story. I mean, when developers ship, you know,
3: we have a party, right? Yeah, the new feature. (laughs) The problem, I mean, the challenge of being, the nice thing about being a developer, as I've spent time as a developer, is you do ship new features. Like, there is a party. You bring right? value to the company. Say, ta-da, we've made something new. Clear. And the problem is, when you're good ops guys, nobody can tell, right? Because everything just works. You know, I, I used to get lonely as an ops guy, so I'd shut a server off. Phone rings every time. <laughs> it's magic, right? Oh, you miss me! So
0: do, do, the, do the ops guys hang out on Slack boards and geek out, too? or You, are they you know, just know
3: where, uh, where ops guys, I think... Experience ops guys, I'm talking about, you know, guys that I worked with running large-scale websites during .com boom and things and so forth. We got good at root cause analysis. Uh, that we did have failures and you talked about them, you you analyzed them down of this is what actually failed. It wasn't enough just to get it back up again we don't talk about it anymore. We would do root cause analysis. Often the root cause analysis was those guys wrote really crappy software. Yeah, right. right." It's all the developer's (laughs) fault. (laughs) But that, you know, there was a a culture of we study what happened. You know, how did, why did it, you know, we were big on, this is something we did at strangely. We used IRC because there was no Slack in the day. And, the fact that the conversation about the failure from top to bottom ended up as a log file in RARC that allowed us to say, why was it hard to figure out what the problem was, like the diagnostic piece? Mm-hmm. And then when we finally, re- you know, it's 99% diagnostics. Once you know the problem is, it's pretty quick to fix. How do you get faster at that? And that turned into this root cause analysis piece. Getting development involved in that, like letting them see those log files. So it was less accusation. Yeah, It's like, hey, you know what? I'm not going to tell you what went wrong. Read the law. Yeah, I'm going to show you. Here's the six hours we spent on Saturday getting this site back up. Right. And was really interesting to watch the devs read that and go, oh, oh, you know, at this point when you realize that problem, that was this code doing that. Also, that's a little bit of street cred, right, for the ops guys in the devs' mind.
0: You know, that's sort of like, wow, okay, maybe now I can, you know, trust this person a little more because I see the way their brain works and how they've analyzed this the problem. De- actually, it, we did get <laughs> it, it back to life. Came up with a solution.
3: But know? I would also argue the issue that we ran into is all too often you're dealing with people's personalities and their interpretations of failure rather than the logs, The nice thing about handing them the law is like, I don't need to tell you what happened. Read it. This is what happened. Mm. And so there's a little less anger there. It's it's just this is what happened.
0: And then if they go, can you translate for me? You can say, yeah, here's where you screwed up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And here's hoping those developers
3: put in enough logging to allow you to do your job. Well, that was the most common thing. When we drag dev guys into a firefight like that, they came out the other side saying, "I don't know how you guys figure anything out. Mm-hmm. Like you're just working blind." And that, and that, you know, we got into this whole dashboarding idea. Can can I, can you let me run a transaction end-to-end? I mean, there were times on these e-commerce sites where I would go buy something just to figure out what the heck was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, as a guy dealing with a crashing website, and the fact that we eventually ended up with dashboards was like, "Yeah, run a false transaction," but. Exercise everything end to end, and then roll it back. And then you could say, "Okay, I did you know this ran." You would go green light, green light, green light, red light. Ah, uh, okay, it's the app server. You know, it, it would help us speed recovery. Like we, I should say, okay, well, we had that piece. It took out this amount of time we spent trying to diagnose those things.
2: And what I hear people talking about when they go to like uh, uh, software as services and all this stuff is is uh, that monitoring and and testing become indistinguishable once you get mature enough. Because some people do very naive monitoring is you may have monitoring that hits some ping service and says, is my app up or not? Right. All you're really monitoring is your heartbeat ping service up. Mm. And if you want to get better, can I actually perform a checkout? Well, now your monitoring starts becoming very similar to your testing. Right. Right. And you're actually running end-to-end transactions in production, rolling them back, like you said, in order to get more accurate monitoring.
3: Well, yeah. What if your, your test suite was actually running production? You know, that you're actually exercising all the pieces. And there are tools that do this now, right? I mean, back in the day, I used AppDynamics, expensive product, but it was really good at creating instrumentation gates at each layer of the application so that we could see those things. New Relic has a bunch of those bits as well, preemptive analytics. Yeah. And and the big thing was just... There's more and more of them every day, too. But for me, from an ops perspective, it was always... Every time we hop across the wire was a point to instrument. And I don't even—I don't know that I even want devs to write that code. It seems like plumbing, like it's a waste of time. I'd just like to be able to see those bits.
2: Once you start getting into the microservices world, you're really
3: going to want the devs to write that code. Or I—I really—I would hope it was automated. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to throw service fabric into this right off the bat just for the fun of it, but Alex is sitting at the end of the table. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. And, and I mean, th- this is a very hip mantra in the DevOps community right now is this idea of building a serverless app. Where right. Where I don't actually own any OSs or anything. It's just a bunch of services. The service fabric looks like this. But one of the pieces I want from that is this detailed, in, in, in this detailed instrumentation. So that you I I do see have What that. I'm calling and how long it took to call.
5: Yeah, you do have that. Um you have a lot of performance counters and events that go through ETW that you can use to see how long did my method take to execute? Um, How many times was my actor or my service activated? And you can go really, really deep um, and sometimes maybe too deep in terms of (laughs) quantity of logs. So your logs Mm -hmm. on the dev box can actually grow pretty quickly.
3: Yeah. Um, Well, you're effectively describing uh, method profiling in production, which just a few years ago was suicide. Absolutely. Right? Like I re- used to use Redgate ants and you would never use that in production because it just crippled the machine. You build a load test and then you run it in a, in a test environment to see what methods were causing trouble. The problem was humans are weirder than any load test tool. So and you could never get the right methods to pop up.
0: So Alex, I want to give you a chance to tell us what service fabric really is and and why we need it. And, you know, if we have services, why do we need uh, yet another thing?
5: Right. So Service Fabric, I see it as uh, a pool of resources, a cluster uh, across which you can deploy applications, whether it's using the programming models from Service Fabric or guest executables. So the thing that's extra is um, you get all the uh, testing tools, you get all the... Telemetry, you get the management tools, you get the automatic balancing of resources. Um, so all the yeah, orchestration let's pause for that one,
0: the automatic balancing of resources. That that's like four wonderful words that take so much pain away, isn't it?
5: Absolutely. So that's where we get into auto scaling uh, and really paying for the resources that we want to use. So what that means is, let's say my cluster is running maybe at CPU across the board and I decide to add maybe three or four more machines to the cluster, I don't have to do anything else than add them to the cluster. The Service Fabrics itself is going to rebalance the applications across those new resources to leverage the most out of that pool.
0: And will it actually add machines if it needs to add machines or do you still have to watch it at that level?
5: Today, you have to do the scaling. Um, You have to make them available. Yeah, you have to make them available. It will scale it
0: as necessary, but you do have to make them available. Yeah. Yeah.
5: And once those machines come in, what's interesting is that since you're working on a stateful services model for microservices, you're not going to lose any state. We're just going to replicate that state to the new nodes. We're going to do all the load balancing for you and make sure that you can find that piece of code that's running right. without having to write all that logic.
0: So yeah, find that piece of code that's running. That's another great statement because in a microservices world, when you have tools like this, you can be encouraged to go a little crazy you know, and just develop uh, services and little many, 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 many microservices, right? Which is good that we can do that, but how do you manage all of those things? How do you see them all under one roof without you know dive, deep diving?
5: It's not easy. <laughs> um, I'd have to say that when you're on Azure, the logs stream to one storage account. So that way you can read from that storage account on your dev box, the multiple machines are emulated. So you're, you've got five nodes or something like that. Right. And you can get a one stream of events across all of those machines.
0: Um, so dashboards really play a big role in monitoring these things. And do you have dashboards built in at Azure or is, or is that do you just provide us with an API so we can do our so own? So
5: Service Fabric actually has an Explorer built in mm-hmm. and that's going to surface issues that you're having in the cluster. It's going to allow you to drill down to various applications um, and figure out if you have an issue there, and then you can use uh, deeper profiling or logs to get more information out of that. Mm.
0: Well, that's pretty cool. And I'm glad you did that because very smart developers come up to me and ask me all the time, what is, what is Service Fabric? And I kind of have a hard time giving them an elevator pitch that, that is convincing. So thank you for that. It's a great yeah. tool. And uh, thank you for being here, and a big round of applause for our panel, Dylan, William,
2: (laughs) and Stefan, and Alex. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.